finally made the TV internet. Someone took a screenshot of me here in the pulpit last night, I think it was, and uh, put it on the internet. So I'm happy I finally got a TV ministry just like Cousin Jimmy did down in Louisiana. Uh, I really look bad. So I, any uh, appearance that it makes me look better is welcome. Uh, I feel like I've broken through ice here at the conference. I complained this morning about how no one talked to me and gave me any feedback on the messages. And Tracy stepped up to the plate uh, over lunch and said, I don't like your tie, but I like your message. So I appreciate Tracy stepping in there and filling in the, the, the blanks. We're going to, uh, I had a message just before I came up here to the pulpit from a gentleman in our church back home in uh, Russellville, Danny Lee Hale. And uh, he said, Brother John, I heard you on the internet last night. I had a good message but I fell asleep. So he said, please don't take a picture of me and uh, post it on the internet sleeping. It's like Elvis was the other day. Uh, uh, so uh, I told him, I answered back, I said, well, I'm gonna preach about hell tonight, so maybe you'll stay awake. So we'll see whether that works or not. We're going to go to Luke chapter 16, Luke chapter 16. And we're going to talk about hell, but not really. Uh, we as a culture have embraced many uh, mythologies or favorite uh, passages of scripture and ideas that are not necessarily biblical. We have embraced a lot of ideas that are not necessarily biblical. And so what we have to do many times if we go to the scriptures tear down people's ideas that they have been taught because they're incorrect and inaccurate do not do justice to the text and rebuild a new foundation upon which they can develop their righteous living and righteous life and have a future destiny so we want to talk about the go-to passage for heaven and hell in the new testament now uh, hell pervades everything. Uh, we talk about going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, Bernard Fall uh, talked about uh, uh, a place called hell when he was talking about the Battle of the French at the NBN Food. He entitled the message or his book Hell in a Very Small Place. Um, we should have learned from that book not to get involved in the Vietnam War, in my opinion. We should have learned, but we didn't. When Audie Murphy fought off a whole battalion of German soldiers in World War II, he entitled his autobiography to hell and back. And so hell pervades everything. However, the thing it does not pervade is apostolic preaching. I went through the book of Acts the other day and I looked at every sermon the Apostle Paul preached, every sermon that the Apostle Peter preached, every sermon that Stephen the deacon preached, and none of them mentioned hell. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? So we have a perverted idea about hell, most of which was gathered or gleaned from the uh, Middle Ages of the Catholic Church, the uh, mythology of hell. And we get most of our ideas about hell from uh, 
a Dante's Inferno rather from the, than from the scripture. So we want to look at a go-to passage that everybody seems to reference when they're talking about hell, and we want to show it, show to you tonight that that is not what it's talking about, and there's nothing there that supports that sort of idea. The title of the sermon is very appropriately, The Rich Man and Lazarus. Rich Man and Lazarus. That is found in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. 19 through 31. However, just like we'd say before, we cannot have a text without a context. So we're going to be looking at the context. And the first step in the context, the first thing in the context, is that it's a warning to the Pharisees. How many Pharisees do we have here tonight? Anyone want to raise their hand and claim to be a Pharisee? So we could truthfully say up front that this passage is not written to us primarily. We might have a secondary application or secondary meaning. But it's a warning to the Pharisees that their attitude toward money is both a violation of the law of the kingdom and the law against adultery. Okay, let's look at it more carefully. We're in the interlude before the passage that we're looking at tonight. We're looking at Luke 14 through 18. This is the preceding context. This gives us clues and hints where the, the narrative is going that Luke has for us. This interlude helps us understand the following story or parable. A lot of ink has been spilled about whether this is a parable or whether it's a story. I personally believe that it's a parable or a story. It doesn't really matter, but it's not a real life event. It's kind of a parenthesis here in 16 verses 14 through 18. It's kind of a parenthesis and a contrast between the disciples and the Pharisees. Jesus had just talked to these disciples. He had told them a parable about the shrewd steward who uh, used his uh, master's resources to gain himself a position when he was dismissed or fired. And so he turns from that story and the response is the Pharisees look bad and make mockery of it. Here we are told two things. Number one, we are told the Pharisees loved money. Secondly, we are told they derided or literally turned up their nose at Jesus for his previous teaching about using money wisely. Jesus said you need to use money wisely to guarantee you a place in the inter eternal or age-lasting habitations. Literally, it's the age-lasting tense. And you and I both know that the, the kingdom age that we starts off the millennial kingdom or the thousand-year reign of Christ is going to be celebrated in tents. It's going to be the Feast of Jubilees, the Feast of the Nations. And so Jesus is saying you need to use your present resources in such a way that guarantees that you participate in the kingdom. So we know these two things about the Pharisees. They love money. They don't love Jesus. And they, secondly all, they derided Jesus' uh, perception of how to use money. Now, Jesus comes back and says, now you are the kind of guys that justify yourself before men, and the explicit or implicit comparison is between justification before men and justification before God. 
This is not initial justification by faith. This is justification by lifestyle. Or as James would say, this is justification by works. The Pharisees were very meticulous as how they behaved. They wouldn't drink coffee. They wouldn't smoke a cigarette in modern culture. They wouldn't listen to certain kinds of music on the radio. They were absolutely strict in their external observance of the law. But they did not touch, and they, their religion did not touch heart issues and heart matters. God knows the heart. Therefore, a new heart in accordance with Jeremiah 31, 33 must be given. You have to have a change of heart to enter into the kingdom. So he warns the Pharisees with a general principle. What is highly esteemed before men, i.e. money, is an abomination, which is a term which means an unacceptable sacrifice before God. Why? Because it's not mixed with faith. It's not mixed with faith. So verse 16 contrasts then the law and the prophets being preached until the ministry of John the Baptist with his proclamation of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. This was also the message Jesus brought. Jesus and John never pre preached the gospel of God's grace. They preached the gospel of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To get into the kingdom, you need to repent. Even if you were a believer, you need to walk the straight and narrow way, not the broad way that led to destruction. This was the message that Jesus brought. Verse 16 has a translation problem. The verb can be translated either as a middle or a passive. So I have decided to take the verb as a middle. The kingdom of God has been preached since John, and the violent is insistently pressing to enter it. Now that's a lot of verbiage, but simply it says that you have to be violent against the world, the flesh, and the devil to be able to enter into the kingdom of God. God's people were called to violent action. So if your eye offends you, prevents you from getting into the kingdom, pluck it out. It's better to enter the kingdom with one eye than with two eyes to be sent to Gehenna, Jesus said. So the solution is to take the kingdom of God as being, the people were pressing into it. They were being violent because they wanted to participate in the kingdom. The Pharisees were not aggressively seeking the kingdom. They, in fact, they were very satisfied with the kingdom that they had, which is the kingdom of this world. Now, then to make sure his audience understands that the kingdom message is a fulfillment of the law and the prophets, Yeshua, Jesus' uh, uh, Hebrew name, Joshua, literally, says, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. So in other words, what we're looking at in the New Testament is something not completely new. It is a fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Christ came to fulfill the law and the prophets, and he did that to demonstrate he was the perfect man qualified to take over the inheritance that the first man had lost, namely Adam. But not only that, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which we looked at the early, uh, earlier today or yesterday, can't remember because the time flows together, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that if you are the light of the world, you collectively as a group of believers, then you also fulfill the law and the prophets. 
So Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets, and you and I can fulfill the law and the prophets because we have the Holy Spirit within us to enable us, to motivate us, to equip us to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Then all of a sudden, out of the blue, we never see this coming, which is totally unrelated to the context, and I've gotten into arguments in my Sunday school class over this one. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced for her husband commits adultery. Now most commentators think this verse 18 is an illustration of the eternal nature of the law. I beg to differ. Another way of looking at it is that the Pharisees were committing adultery with their love for money. Physical adultery is often parallel with spiritual adultery in the scripture. This is especially strong in the structure of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. In 1618, the term the law and prophets is mentioned. Notice chapter 16, verse 18. Uh, let's see where I'm at here. Verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. That's the first mention of the term, the law and the prophets. And I made a printing error in my slideshow. It shouldn't be 1618, it should be 1616. Now, however, what we need to notice is that this mention of the law and the prophets that were until John forms a bracket with chapter 16, verse 31. Look at chapter 16, verse 31. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rose from the dead. So you see what's going on here? In the beginning of the section, Luke mentions the law and the prophets. At the last verse of the section, he mentions the law and the prophets. And that basically ties the parable or the story together and helps us understand that there's one theme going on. This means that the subject under discussion in the so-called parable is determined by the immediate context. Now we come to the parable or the story in proper, the rich man and Lazarus. This is a most difficult teaching because of traditional understandings that it teaches immediate punishment in hell after physical death and immediate presence in heaven prior to having a resurrected body. Does it not? Have you heard that interpretation of the scripture? Anyone heard that interpretation? Raise their hands. Okay. All right. This interpretation, of course, overlooks the flow of the argument of the book. Jesus is in his third cycle of confrontation with the Pharisees. The first cycle was Luke 5, 17 through 6, 19. The second cycle was Luke 11, 14 through 54. And the third cycle is found in 14.1 through the present passage. Luke and Jesus are particularly hard on the Pharisees in Luke's Gospel, more so even than in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll talk about that later as to why that's the case. Now, when we come to this parable, we need to go back a couple pages, in my Bible at least, to Luke chapter 15, uh, verse 1. Turn with me back to Luke 15, verse 1. And this is before the three very famous parables of the lost coin, 
the lost sheep and the lost son, is it not? So here we have in Luke chapter 15, verse 1, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes murmured. We have two groups of people there, the scribes and the Pharisees who murmur, and the tax collectors and the sinners. May I suggest to you that this informs the characters that follow in the parable after this. And this theme of the two groups under consideration continues on till we get to the parable that we're talking about tonight, 16, 19 through 31. This assumes we understand that the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son represents the scribes and the Pharisees. He doesn't go into the feast. The feast is a picture of the kingdom age, and he doesn't go in. We don't know whether he's going to break down and go in, but the younger brother makes it, even though he spent time slopping the hogs. An unclean profession for a Jewish boy, by the way. This interpretation that this is heaven and hell overlooks the immediate context about love of money and the eternal nature of the law. Luke is more interested in the use of wealth than any other gospel writer. I had a, uh, a uh, classmate during seminary who was Chinese, ethnically Chinese, and he had a summer internship in Hawaii. And Hawaii is a very wealthy place to be, especially in Chinatown. So he was pastoring a Chinese church in uh, Hawaii, and he wanted, he told me, he said, I want to do a series of sermons on Luke where he talks about the use of wealth. He said, and I looked at it, and I developed my sermons, and I found out I wasn't preaching about wealth, I was preaching about rewards. So Luke is very interested in uh, how we use uh, wealth, and he has a very negative approach to the Pharisees. May I suggest to you that Luke was Jewish? I know that goes against the grain. Everybody says he's a Gentile. May I suggest to you that he was Jewish and that he was a Sadducee because one of the high priest's name during that period of time was Theophilus, and nobody wants to discuss that. And why else does Luke, the, the so-called physician, have so much intimate knowledge about the placing of the furniture in the temple or the tabernacle? He tells you when Zacharias, the son of John the Baptist, stands, he was standing at this corner of the altar or that corner of the altar, he has intimate details that only a priest would have. He also has genealogical details, which only the, the genealogy information was kept in the temple. He also has a slant, let us put it say, an emphasis against the Pharisees. And when he writes the book of Luke, he says, there's a whole bunch of priests that are zealous for the law. Why would he do that? I'm suggesting to you that you might want to consider the evidence that, uh, that Luke was a Pharisee. He may have even been the private physician of Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus. Starting in 14.1 and earlier, Luke represents the king. Not only does he have an uh, issue with wealth going on, 
Not only does he have an issue with the Pharisees going on, but starting in 14.1 and earlier, Luke represents the kingdom of heaven or God under the figure of a banquet. Some commentator says when you read the Gospel of Luke, you either have Jesus going to a banquet, at a banquet, or leaving a banquet. So he's preoccupied with the banqueting motif in Scripture. And we all know that that goes back to Isaiah chapter 25, where it says that God is going to prepare a banquet on those mountains, and he's going to do away with the veil of death forever. So the banqueting scenes in the New Testament are designed to point us to the kingdom of God, the fellowship that comes in the kingdom. Now as we go to the, the parable proper, there are problems. There are interpretive problems. If you read it literally, and of course I ask you to read it literally, but don't stop there. The first problem in this passage is that Jesus never accuses the rich man of any sin. Does he? He just says he was busy feasting away while there's a poor person at his door. Of course, you and I develop the thought, we infer that this is sin, this is neglect, this is not using our resources in the proper way, but Jesus never mentions that in the parable. Jesus also never proclaims Lazarus to be a righteous man. He's a poor man. He's not a righteous man. And if this is heaven and hell, then the righteous can see the unrighteous suffering. That's another problem in the passage. If this is heaven and hell, then how could a drop of water in any way cure suffering? Lastly, why did the rich man appeal to Abraham and not to God to send someone back to the dead? Sending people from the dead is God's job, it's not Abraham's job. So let's consider these as we go through the passage. Starting in verse 19, you notice the parabolic formula, a certain rich man, he was clothed in purple and fine linen. This dude was dressed. The clothes make the man. He knew how to come on strong. The Urban's Bible Dictionary says the wearing of purple was associated with, particularly, with royalty. So this gentleman who is being presented to us is at least part of the royal family. He might not be the king, but he just might be a prince or a high official. He's royalty. In addition, the New Bible Dictionary tells us the use of linen in Old Testament times was prescribed for priests. The coat, the turban, and the girdle must be of fine linen. So we're in safe ground thinking that the rich man represented a royal priestly group. Are we not? And the reason why we can say that without hesitation is Exodus 19.6. And you all shall be to me a royal priesthood and a holy nation. These words shall you speak to the children of Israel. The clothing of the rich man identifies him symbolically with the people of Israel. Is everyone with me so far? Okay. The rich man fared sumptuously every day, kind of like coming to Community Baptist Church, feasting sumptuously every day, having a multiplication of crockpots. This refers to both the physical and the spiritual blessings of having most favored nation status with God. God says, back in uh, Deuteronomy 32, he says, I have put all the nations under the authority of the sons of God. Literally, 
the angelic princes, whether good or bad. He says, but I have reserved the nation of Israel for my private fiefdom. This is where I'm going to stay. This is where I'm going to supervise things. This is where I'm going to intervene in life. And lo and behold, when we come to the book of Acts, we find out the apostle Paul leaves that land of Israel, leaves the presence of God, leaves the temple of God, leaves the law of God, and goes out seeking people in the nations, all the way from the eastern area around Iran or Persia, uh, all the way to the west in, in uh, Tarshish or Spain. In other words, God's destiny is to reverse the curse of Babel. His plan is to reverse the curse of Babel and send people out from this land that he owns, that he, he uh, has a supervision over, and he's going to reclaim people for his kingdom that is to come. The rich man fared sumptuously every day. The spiritual and physical blessings were on Israel for most favored nation status. In verse 20, we first encounter Lazarus. He is a beggar. This is an apt description of Gentiles who laid at the gate of Judah. Who laid at the gate of Judah. The Jewish people had a term uh, called the proselyte at the gate. So this man is seeking something from Israel, seeking something from the rich man, seeking something from the rich man's table. He is consoled in his misery by dogs. Now a dog was a Jewish term for Gentiles. Notice even that Jesus used this term with the Syrophoenician woman. Mark chapter seven, verses 24 through 30. He has sores on his body rendering him unclean in accordance with Leviticus 15. He is a persona non grata in the nation of Israel. He is a dog. He longed to be fed crumbs from the Jewish table, which we could understand as benefits of being the physical seed of Abraham. Notice that the Gentile woman uses the same terms when talking about the deliverance of her daughter. Notice the crumbs that were gathered up in Matthew 14, 20. He longing to participate in and fully participate in the feast of Israel, the feast days of Israel. And here we go. Here's where it connects with this morning's uh, service. The name of the beggar is given. Lazarus equals Eliezer. Lazarus is the New Testament Eliezer. Literally, the one whom God helps. We saw Eliezer this morning uh, when he was servant to Abraham. This brings immediately to mind Eliezer of Damascus, a Gentile who was the heir of Abraham before Isaac was born. Was he not? Abraham just came back from the Valley of the Kings, the Battle of the Kings, and uh, Yahweh appears to him. He says, do not fear, Abraham. I am your, I am Yahweh, I am your, let's see, your reward shall be very great. And as soon as God says your reward shall be very great, by the way, that's the first occurrence of the, the term reward in the Bible. As soon as then he says that, Abraham says, well, how's that going to be? Because Eliezer of Damascus is my heir right now. 
So Eliezer was the heir of Abraham, the Gentile heir of Abraham, until, even though Eliezer was faithful to Abraham, he, being a Gentile, was disinherited as soon as the child of promise, Isaac, was born. He and all the Gentiles he represented were beggars at the gate of Israel. Now let's see what happens in the action. First, Lazarus dies and is taken by angels to the bosom of Abraham. Is everybody in tune with that? The bosom of Abraham is a problem. Why is it a problem? It could either mean a section of Hades, the, the unseen world where the righteous dead were kept, although the idea comes from Talmudic teaching, not the Bible, or it could be a reference to the Messianic kingdom. We've already talked about that one of the major themes of Luke is the Messianic kingdom under the role of a banquet. So there we have Eliezer, Lazarus, sitting at the table with Abraham, possibly. Now we have already heard about the fact that the Gentiles will come from the east and the west and sit down at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Luke chapter 13. This is a reference to the Feast of Tabernacles. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, and King David were the seven notables in the Old Testament who were spiritually invited to the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is when all the Jewish people go out and live in a tent outside the house or on the roof of the house for seven days. And they have guests of honor there. The seven worthies or the seven notables of the Old Testament who I have just named. So when Jesus is saying, you're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's saying, you're going to participate in the Feast of Tabernacles with the patriarchs of Israel in resurrected bodies, eating catfish, along the Lake of Galilee. There is catfish in the Lake of Galilee, by the way. The feast in the kingdom was a feast where everyone in the world will be required to attend. If you don't go up to Jerusalem during the kingdom age, then it's not going to rain on your town, basically. So it behooves us to go up to the kingdom, uh, to the feast of the kingdom. Starting in Luke 14, we have a number of illustrations of the kingdom under the, under the figure of a messianic feast or banquet. So the bosom of Abraham could still be connected to Abraham. Are you with me on that? That is to say the resurrected body of Abraham. We were joking at the table for lunch about our resurrected bodies and the fact that our very heads, uh, the hairs of our head are numbered, which gave Tracy great comfort, and also his wife. And uh, when I looked at that, I used to look at that and just kind of blow on past it. But what God is saying in that passage is that he has a complete DNA map of your body right now, as it looks here, right now. And he's going to use that DNA map to resurrect you from the dead. And guess what you're going to look like? You're going to look like exactly how you look right now. Maybe 20, 30 years of age. But you're going to have superpowers. 
You're going to have the ability to eat fish out along the lake and also walk through doors. So my wife and I don't have to forget about uh, where the car keys are or anything like that. So here we have the bosom of Abraham with a biblical background rather than a Talmudic background. Okay, that's where I'm going with this. Now, what happens? We have angelic transportation. Now you can have your Ubers and all your self-controlled cars all you want to. I'm waiting for angelic transportation. Verse 22 says that the angels carried Lazarus to the bosom of Abraham. It is hard to see how this language can be used if there is a disembodied spirit of a man being transported to heaven, although some commentators and public uh, figures preach and teach that. However, we do have an example of the angelic transportation of real living people in the scriptures. Where is that? Matthew 24, 15 says, He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet on the day of atonement, and they will gather together his chosen ones from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. How are we going to get to Jerusalem during the kingdom age? The Lord's going to send his angels to get us, basically. Of course, this, recur this refers to the second coming of Christ and the gathering of the resurrection of the saints to Jerusalem. Often angels are used as transportation devices for believers. Notice that even the Lord uses cherubim as transportation. Are you with me on that? Let's look here. Psalm 18, he rode upon a cherub. He flew upon the wings of the wind. It's talking about the Lord God Almighty. So we might want to infer that the white horses that believers ride in Revelation are really angels who have been transformed into horses because angels have the ability to change into whatever shape they want to or whatever shape the Lord wants them to. Okay. Having left behind the angelic transportation, we now deal with Hades. Hades also is a problem. We have been traditionally taught that Hades equals hell. However, that is not the case. The root meaning is unseen. So a person who is buried is literally in Hades because he's unseen. Most, if not all the time, it translates the Hebrew word Sheol, which means the grave. So this person is buried. The New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology states that Hades comes from Hydeen to see with the negative prefix ah, and so would mean the invisible. In the Septuagint, Hades occurs more than 100 times. In the majority of instances, to translate Hebrew, Sheol, the underworld which receives all the dead, it is the land of darkness. Notice in this verse that the rich man identifies Abraham as his father. But why wouldn't he ask God for mercy rather than Abraham for mercy? Abraham is our father, the Pharisees said in John chapter 8, verse 39. Therefore, he's a physical son of Abraham, but this also alerts us to the audience being Pharisees since they were always appealing to Abraham and not to God. John 8:53 says, Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead? And the answer to that question is, Yes, I am because I personally knew Abraham. We talked with each other. 
The translation in this flame is erroneous here. He is being tormented in this flame, which is singular, not plural. An appropriate translation, if we understand the story geographically, would be in this brightness. Since he was likely, that is the rich man who is in torment or in the, the flame, since he was likely on the other side of the Jordan River, he would be suffering from the brightness of the sun. The verb, the word rendered torment here is the form of the Greek word aduno, which literally means grief, pain, or suffering. It is not a word that talks about physical suffering. It is mental anguish, not physical pain. We've already argued that it means testing. Compare Isaiah 5, 24, 29, 6, and 43, 2, where flame is a symbol for the wrath of God. It seems to be Luke's equivalent to the weeping and gnashing of teeth of Matthew chapter 8, 24, and 25. Notice that the roles in the eschaton or in the kingdom are reversed. Notice that this is based on the strict law of retribution that we quote probably nowadays as an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. There's a great gulf between the two characters after they pass that no one can pass over. The word pass here means to pass over a body of water. In the geography of Israel, it can only mean the Jordan River Valley, the border between the promised land and the Gentile nations. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah were in this valley the Dead Sea is in this valley. Now last but not least, the man with five brothers. Here's your test question for today. There's only one person in the Bible who has five brothers. And the brothers' names were Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, and Zebulun. And who is the sixth brother? The rich man is Judah. Notice he is a corporate symbol representing oppositional Judaism at the time of Jesus. This story has no individualistic meaning. The request, send someone from the dead and tell my brothers. The answer, no. What part of no do you not understand? No, this was forbidden from the law, by the law. No calling up the spirits of the dead. The charge, Judah is not listening to Moses and the prophets. And just like we talked about progressive revelation, if they didn't listen to Moses and the prophets, then they were not going to listen to the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly life. Therefore, they will also reject Yeshua, or Jesus, after he rises from the dead. This story turns out to be teaching that Gentiles will be grafted into the Abrahamic blessing. They will be sitting next to Abraham at the table, and those to whom it belongs will be cast out of the kingdom. Now, in conclusion, this parable or story has been misunderstood for a long time by many ministers assuming that one goes to heaven or hell immediately after death. This parable or story does not prove that. A careful study shows that the story was directed against the Pharisaic opposition to the earthly ministry of Jesus. The lesson, the Pharisees were in danger of losing their position in the kingdom 
and the Gentiles would enjoy the benefits of being adopted sons of Abraham by faith. And you said, well, Brother John, you've just proved to me that I do not have to be worried about heaven or hell in this passage. But this is what you have to worry about. Is there any poor person sitting at your gate that you have not begged faith? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for a destiny that we cannot imagine what it's going to be like. In Jesus' name, amen.